Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, before we start, an item of business. A little bit of a special offer around the 10% Happier app. I know uh, this is something that uh, the app that comes up quite a bit on the show, and it's uh, something I have been dedicating a huge chunk of my life to. It's I'm incredibly proud of the team we've built and the the teachers we the extraordinary teachers we've recruited. Uh, we now have on the in the four or so years that we've been around, we now have more than 500 guided meditations on topics ranging from anxiety to parenting to focused. A lot of stuff on sleep, a lot, whole section dedicated to sleep. We have a whole section dedicated to sort of mini podcasts. We call them talks, bite-sized little bombs of wisdom that you can listen to on the go. And then, of course, our signature product are, are, these, cor- are these courses that we do, um, which combine little uh, video segments, two to five minutes long, followed by guided meditations. And we have a ton of data that show that people who use these Courses on the app, um, it really helps keep them engaged and uh, to help them form an abiding habit. So the offer is that because it's New Year's and and people are interested in forming new habits this time of year, we want to give you, if you're new to us, uh, 40% off your subscription to the app. You can redeem that at uh, 10%.com slash 2020, 10%.com forward slash 2020. If you don't want to write it down, you can just look in the show notes. There'll be a link there. And I also want to say we do hear from people who worry about the cost. So I want to mention that if you can't afford this or you know somebody who really could use this but can't afford it, uh, just send us an email to access at 10percent.com. Access, A-C-C-E-S-S, at 10%, uh, spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T.com. We'll put this email address in the show notes as well. And, you know, if you don't have the means, we you still have, I believe, uh, the human right to be able to train your own mind, and we want to help you do that. So access at 10percent.com and let us know. Okay. Uh, our episode this week, latest installment in, in this series that I'm really psyched about uh, that we put together uh, around the new year, around forming healthy habits in a way that involves a lot less shame and self-flagellation. This week, we're focusing on how to boot up a meditation habit, but our guest, Alexis Santos, has quite a rangy mind. I, you know, it, I love this guy and I consider him a friend. And so I say that really as a compliment that we were able to touch on a lot of issues throughout the course of this interview, including how to form a meditation habit, but also how to form, how to approach the habit formation generally, which he comes at from a really deep Dharma perspective that added a layer to this often superficial process of habit formation, you know, little life hacks, et cetera, et cetera. He adds a layer of depth that, really kind of threw me back in my seat a little bit. It is incredibly interesting. We talk about the relationship between meditation and sleep. We talk about his time in Burma, where he became a monk uh, after having dropped out of med school. And we talk about how to weave meditation into your daily life. Here we go, Alexis Santos. I was going to tell you, actually, (laughs) what uh, you were, as I was walking up to record this with you, Ryan was telling you something. Ryan, the producer of the show, I was going to tell you that actually a lot of our app users talk to me about how much they love listening to you. And Ryan was in the hallway just rhapsodizing about how he uses you to fall asleep. And he, he uses 
your meditations with his kids to fall asleep. So I don't know if you hear about this from you know people out in the wild, but I hear about you from our users all the time. Yeah, that's that's nice. I actually do hear from a lot of people, and it's particularly around falling asleep. Um, <laughs> I think that's a particular skill I seem to have, um, and it's it also is the case on retreats as well. And I I wonder if I'm doing something wrong because people tend to feel pretty at ease and. You know, on that line between what is real relaxation and when are we drifting into non-awareness that then goes towards sleep. And it's a fun line to explore, and it seems like I help a lot of people explore that edge <laughs> at night. So it's good to hear. So you, you find that when you're giving Dharma talks, the evening talks during long meditation retreats, you notice people nodding up? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or, or the guided meditations. Which oh, are, see, you know, And that's an interesting place because you're trying to encourage a little bit of the wakefulness. And I think the way in which I like to approach awareness is a real sense of ease and gentleness. In fact, I just was teaching a day-long retreat, and the organizer sent uh, a blog post that someone wrote wanting me to just read what someone wrote about the day. And one of the things, the highlights for them, was I encouraged everyone to lie down and to explore being aware while lying down. And this writer expressed amazement that this would be okay to do (laughs) in a retreat environment that you can, in fact, not only lie down, and fall asleep, and that even if you're snoring, that that's part of our experience in that moment. And that level of invitation for her was so good to hear. So I hear that kind of thing frequently. I didn't plan to go here first, but yeah. since we're here, and we're going to be talking about how to form a meditation habit, one of the concerns that I hear from people, one of the many concerns I hear from people who are struggling to boot up a meditation habit is, I keep falling asleep. Right. And right. And... We have all these guided meditations on the app, and other apps have them too, that help you fall asleep through meditation. So what is it? Is sleep bad or good? Right. But the interesting thing is the very same phenomenon of sleep. When we're trying to stay awake, for example, on our meditation cushion or on a retreat, during a sitting, the phenomenon of sleep can feel aversive. We get reactive to falling asleep, and then we sit there and struggling. Then at night, when sleep as a phenomenon isn't happening, you have the opposite reaction. Why isn't it happening? And the interesting thing to explore there is just the framing in our mind about an experience conditions our reaction to it. So this is where I really like to encourage folks when they're practicing, for example, on in a more formal way, and you're sitting on your cushion and you begin to fall asleep, rather than struggling with a sleep, begin to explore what are my ideas that are operating in the background that make me resist this experience of falling asleep? What is it like just to experience sleep as, well, maybe the mind and body are tired right now? Can I just feel the sleep? And then on the other end, we're in bed and we're not falling asleep. See what happens when the mind starts to wonder about how much sleep am I getting? How am I going to be tomorrow? What happens when we have those thoughts versus, this is actually pretty peaceful to let the body lie here in the warm bed. We're fortunate enough, you know, to have those kinds of conditions. What does it feel like to be here lying down? 
and just the reframing of the views behind the phenomenon of either sleep or not sleep, we really discover why we're reacting out of habits of greed and aversion. So wanting and resistance. Yes, wanting and resistance, two of the most noxious things you can bring to the meditation party or right. to the party generally in your mind. But so, but what is the alteration of view that would bring about? Is it that if I'm sitting and meditating, right. trying to boot up my meditation habit, right, like right. a good whatever, good little boy in my case, um, and I fall asleep, maybe or I'm starting to fall asleep, maybe my view ought to be the background, my my overall framing of that experience should be, well, if I fall asleep, so what? Right. So what? And why isn't it a so what? Right. And the the reason why it isn't a so what is because we personalize sleep as something that we don't want to be experiencing or we want it to be happening rather than seeing what is happening as a process that we can be with. And that's our whole meditation practice. How do I be with the changing experiences that we are inevitably going to experience, right? And we talk about, you know, in meditation practices, we're going to experience the range of pleasant and unpleasant gain and loss, experience loss of family. And there's so many things that we experience. So our practice isn't about getting what we want. And yet we often think that's going to be something that we're going to be tested when the real test comes. And yet, Reality is happening all the time, meaning the reality of this moment, awake or asleep, is is another, in a way, training ground to see how am I relating to this moment. Is there really a problem with not falling asleep? Or if the mind is having a problem at night with not falling asleep, how do I, how do I simply be with that, right? And that's our practices. How do I be with what is actually happening? And as we understand that attitude in the mind, it opens up in a way, uh, this is where that deep invitation to to relax with whatever we're experiencing as the natural unfolding of our practice. And it doesn't mean we don't do anything, but it does mean we begin to have a more skillful relationship to what is arising. And it may just be not falling asleep or falling asleep when we don't want to be or maybe other challenges in life. And that's what we discover where our edges are. Like where do I get triggered? Where do I get overwhelmed and reactive? So in a way, the principles are the same. And yet oftentimes we think, well, meditation is about doing something particular, being awake, when in fact we're really uncovering these deep roots in the mind that become resistant or reactive to this flow of experience, right, the flow of natural phenomenon. It seems like you're saying if we uh, – the attitude we should have like deliberately cognitively in our mind towards sleep when we don't want it, like when we're trying to formally meditate, is no big deal. And the attitude we should have in our mind when we want to fall asleep at night and can't is – you know, there's, there are levels here, but the attitude is the same. It's like, all right, well, maybe I'm not going to fall asleep – What's the worst thing that could happen? And then the deeper move, it seems, in both scenarios is let's get curious about what's happening in the mind vis-a-vis the presence of something we don't want or the absence of something we do want. Right. Yeah. And in a way, this touches on the the wisdom level of the mind. What do you that, mean by that? So the – an understanding 
our understanding that as we look at our experience over and over again, we do start to have these insights. And in, in meditation practice, one of the main insights we talk about is seeing our moment-to-moment experience as phenomenon, as a process that's unfolding. So we normally, when we walk around, could say we're on autopilot to some degree, or we're in the, sort of sounds judgmental, but we're in like the trance of our life. So hearing and seeing our thoughts, our body, all kind of presents in a story-type way where we're not really awake to the unfolding processes that are going on. And it's so easy to just miss it. The remarkable thing is it's actually not that hard to notice it. And this is where we often think meditation practice requires hard work Mm. when in fact, and I've always appreciated, appreciated that it's really just the remembering that is not a habit. When we make remembering to notice the present moment as a habit, we begin to realize, oh, being aware actually doesn't require a lot of striving doesn't require pushing, right? And so that that steady awareness allows us to see this moment-to-moment phenomenon. And then we start, this is where I was trying to get to, which is that understanding of our experience through the lens that our personal experience are aspects of this mind and body process that are unfolding. We tend to see it through the lens of good and bad, the more that we personalize something, then we want everything to go good and we want to get rid of everything bad. The more we see it as an unfolding process, that we can be aware of worry, of anxiety, of falling asleep, of staying awake when we want to fall asleep. And we can see those rhythms as different things that we can actually meet with awareness, see the habits of aversion, resistance to them. They begin to lose power as something that's going to then take us over as, uh, you know, kind of throw us into a reactive, you know, bad mood or just get upset by whatever is going on. So this is where you see it, you know, as the mind gets a little bit more settled, you see people get more comfortable actually with allowing themselves to fall asleep. And I, one of my personal goals is to be able to be teaching a retreat. So there's me, you know, the teachers on the dais platform teaching a group, however many people that, that are there, and maybe I'd be teaching and during a you know long sitting and giving some guided meditation, and then actually be able to fall asleep myself, fall asleep <laughs> because that would be a real sign of okayness, right? Because that's that's one of the things that my teacher that I said with in Burma. Because he gets translated, there can be these long pauses. And then in between the long pauses, sometimes you'd hear this deeper breathing and you kind of open your eyes wondering, is he still awake? <laughs> and then you hear the snoring coming. And, he, and there's something really beautiful about seeing someone so at ease, you know, not trying to get it right, but just being with their own, their own reality. So I just want to go back and clarify something. Mm. Again, this is just from my own understanding. So you talked about how we kind of walk around and – the world in our traditional mindless mode, which we're right. all sort of – we come by honestly because we Absolutely. evolved for it. Right. You know, we're just – the world just looks solid and it's all a movie um, 
you know, it seems like one solid reality. Um, uh, I'm here. You're sitting across the table from me. It's all uh, and everything's through the lens of um, my habitual sort of self-centered mode. Right. Right. In meditation, what we're doing is actually getting curious and look, picking apart the present moment um, in a really interesting way. Like, oh, wow. Um, So there's a lot going on right now. If I pay attention, I can feel my butt on this chair. I can hear the sound of my voice. I can notice maybe there's an arising desire for a pretzel. Um, And picking it apart in that way non-judgmentally is what I think produces the okayness that allows you to fall asleep because then you're not so longer caught up in the story of, oh, my God, I'm not sleeping. I'm screwed tomorrow. I have this big presentation. I'm going to be so tired. I'm going to screw up the presentation. I'm going to live under a bridge. Right. It's over. Right. Right. So the story disintegrates because we're kind of just getting curious in a a really gentle, nonjudgmental way about what's happening right now. And there's something – there's a deep relief in that that may produce the aforementioned okayness. Is that an yes. apt summary? Sounds great. Sounds great. And and I just add that every time we do take care of our mind in that way, that we're meeting whatever experience, let's say at night, not able to fall asleep, when we're meeting that, and it is a receptive awareness because picking apart can sound a little dominating or Yes. The, yes, the yes. sport sati. Yeah. Sati, had, sati is the Pali word, and that has a feminine, actually, in that language, kind of characterization. So it's this beautiful, receptive knowing. We know things as they are. We don't have to get in there and necessarily tease them apart. That's what being awake allows us to do, is we know where we are, knowing what we're experiencing as we're experiencing it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this thing about stereotypically uh, masculine versus feminine approach to things because I'm not an expert on that. Um, but I, it, I know that in my own meditation practice, when I'm leaning in too hard and right. trying to be a good yeah. clinical yeah. meditator, uh, I run into trouble. Right. Uh, and when I finally relax, or as Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, yeah. talks about surrender and just receive – whatever's arising. I know this sounds a little touchy-feely, yeah, but I know. Right. it is what it is. Like right. when, you're, when, right. when you're meditating, if you can just relax and just notice whatever comes up with a kind of warmth and non-judgmental nature, you're not in there trying to pick it apart the way I used traditional right. masculine language, which I'm glad that you clarified, then somehow the whole thing kind of opens up right. for you. There's, right. a, there's a little expression on the wall at Insight Meditation Society where you used to work. It says something. Some, yes. Yeah. It says something like, it, when you drop your expectations, the whole practice opens up for you or something along something those like lines? Something like that, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, that, that's that's great. That that quality, and it does, it can sound a little wishy-washy or not, like what's the power of that? But that receptive quality of awareness that becomes more like a mirror or this awakened attention that is able to be with something really just as it is is the absence of striving. It's the absence of wanting. It's the absence of needing it to be different. And the way my teacher in Burma, and, and Joseph's also one of my, my teachers, but this, this teacher in Burma, Saida Utejaniya, he often would tell me, you know, if your mind, if you are practicing in a balanced and clear way while lying in bed, the body is getting its rest. And the mind is getting its rest as well. So then the whole notion of needing to fall asleep 
begins to change because you can actually feel that sense of ease. And the more you begin to trust that that quality of mind is a really special, in a way, uh, it's normal, but it's very special in that sense because now you're getting that taste of what is what is a, a moment of freedom, a moment of deep ease really feel like. And that that's restful. So that's why when I'm lying in bed at night, if I'm practicing in a way that feels balancing, I, I really can, not always, but I can for the most part lie there and be pretty contented and then watch out for those energies when they come in, those habits of worry, which is then my mind starting to think about time, resistance to the being awake or not falling asleep. And I just watch that. And when that begins to settle down again, what's left behind is a mind that's really peaceful. So is it true that if you practice like that for an extended period of time and don't get that much sleep, it really is totally fine? Or is actually what he's done is tell you right. something he's that- tricking me. Yeah, he's tricking <laughs> you into being so okay with right. whatever's happening that you do fall asleep. Yeah. Um, test it out. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say too much about what can happen on deep, long retreats, but it, our our view of how much sleep is necessary can be a little bit different. I think then what we experience, and this is different, when you're we're in retreat environment, you're not, the mind's not as stimulated and getting as exhausted. So I want to say that really does apply a little bit more to a retreat environment. But what is a, what is a retreat environment? It's a place where you're giving yourself the opportunity to pay attention in the present moment in as skillful way as you can in a lot more moments during the day. Nothing really prevents us from doing that during our daily life, but it's harder because the container around us, life around us, the people we're talking to aren't supporting, you know, just because that's not what we're doing, but the environment doesn't remind us, hey, notice what's happening right now. But the more that becomes our internal habit, you can feel it. The day becomes more smooth in a way. There's a sense of being in a, a certain way greater, in greater ease during the day, not as exhausted and overwhelmed you know, by the time you get to the end of day. But that's a learning process, and each day can become, in a way, a new opportunity to just explore. Let's see how much awareness comes in you know, during this next day. I want to go back to something you said earlier because it really ties into habits. Right. Which is... We get this sense – this actually ties together a couple of threads that have come up. We get the sense that meditation needs to be hard work. This is, I'm kind of quoting right. you here. Yes. And that in part is kind of the masculine approach. Right. The, and this is this men and women and uh, everywhere in between All fall genders. into this. All genders. Right. All genders fall into this, uh, the masculine approach of trying to like win at meditation. Right. And yet all it is on some level – and you kind of got to experience this and practice it yourself in order to get this, is remembering to wake up. And mm-hmm. that remembering – by the way, you, you invoke the word sati, which is the ancient uh, – in the ancient language of Pali from the uh, Indian subcontinent, is the original word for mindfulness, which actually has lots of different right. translations. But one of the translations is recollecting or remembering. Right. And there's – that's what's happening as I experience it in the mind is there's like this mis- – you just get better over time at creating the habit of waking up. And this happens on the cushion. You notice you've been distracted for a while and you 
wake up in some magical way. Right, uh, and right. and uh, there you are again. You're back with your breath or whatever it is you're trying to meditate on. And this also happens in life. You're standing online at the supermarket and you're realizing you're compulsively checking your Twitter. Uh, and you're like, wait a minute. Actually, I can put this away and just tune into whatever's happening right now. So that seems like the habit of mind par excellence. Absolutely. Yeah, that there are we can you know oftentimes we hear the word habit and I think the associations tend to be somewhat negative and you know, what you know your habits and yet any quality of mind you know mind and heart the, the the factors of our mind that are going to be supportive in our life as they are used over and over again and allowed to arise again and again in a sense they be they just become strengthened. So we refer to them as habitual. They're habits of the mind. So if I were to try willfully to follow my breath from the moment I wake up to when I go to bed at night, impossible for me. I just, there's no way I can do that. But if I try to support the conditions that allow awareness to continue to rise so that I can sense inwardly, what does it feel like when awareness is present? And then during those periods where I'm more caught up into experiences, the thinking mind or just lost, very little awareness present, as I recognize that, so there's a, a knowing and a familiarizing myself with the presence, the absence of awareness, or what enables awareness to come back and really appreciate the difference when awareness returns. Trusting in that process that as awareness becomes natural and that sense of having momentum, I can feel it. Then awareness more and more likely can follow me wherever I go. I walk, and then the awareness starts to follow. You're seeing, and if you've made a little bit of a habit of being aware of seeing, then awareness can be there as you see or as you hear. You mentioned hearing the sound of your voice. Whatever it is that you begin to include in the awareness, increasingly that becomes the habit of the mind. And there's a, I think there's a, a phase, could be a phase shift in our practice where you need to put in some personal effort to remind yourself, well, maybe I need to return to the breath or the body to reconnect with something clear. And then I think what happens as you get more comfortable with that to really explore what is needed, what conditions are needed right now for awareness to return. Mm. And I think that, is where we start to mature in our practice. And, and again, that's a little bit that wisdom factor that understands what conditions are necessary. And our, as you were mentioning, that masculine or dominating striving energy that so much of us have taken in because of our times, our culture, which is unless I'm really striving and trying to do something, it's not going to work. And this understanding actually is an understanding of what are the conditions that are needed to drop into the moment. Like one drop of dye into a clear glass, one drop, and it just seeps into the whole, the whole container. So in the same way, the mind is like that as well. One reminder can be enough and then let go and just see what happens now that I've brought in the conditions. And it may be just allowing the intention to be aware in the present moment and the awareness returns. In that way, you're starting to trust the quality of awareness to work. Rather than me being aware, you're beginning to trust awareness to actually function and let it do its job, which is to be awake, to know, to know our feelings, 
you know, our moods, to know our body, whatever it is, you know, in the present moment. And I, what I like to often say is it's actually not that hard to know your mind, for example. Most people know generally if they're feeling agitated, overwhelmed, stressed, or at ease, or even just not knowing that not very clear what their emotion is, that's also easy to know. That's why, like, so many people can diary so well, and then they sit down to meditate because you kind of put in to a box what awareness should look like, and then the mind starts to struggle to know, when in fact knowing is a very natural function of the mind. We can know a lot about our own experience. So I like to invite in that that sense of ease um, of knowing, knowing what's happening, and that it doesn't take that hard work. But we forget, so we get caught up and. Caught up in experience basically means the awareness begins to, to diminish a bit. And you can, you can feel that as you, as you go about the rhythms of aware and not aware. Right? It just keeps going up and down. You, um, this emphasis on natural awareness that I'm hearing from you, that, that just simply knowing what's happening in one's mind right now or just being in a, aware in a raw way of, whatever you're feeling in your body without getting caught up in the story around it, being aware in a non-judgmental, calm, receptive way of the fact that there is aversion right now. You're experiencing aversion in the face of a feeling of sleepiness on the meditation cushion that you don't want or the lack thereof when you actually do want sleep. All of that can happen and be separate from being caught up in the story of experience that we're so often, we're just wrapped up in our monkey mind, the voice in our head, this emphasis that you have on on the effortless nature of just being aware. Um, it seems to me that you 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 got this from the aforementioned Sayada Utejaniya. Yes. So yeah. I'll be interested. Maybe that's just a way for us to dive into how you got interested in meditation, who this Burmese, how'd you hook up with this Burmese master right. and right. how that informs the way you teach generally now. Yeah. So let's see. I How far back do we want to go? Um, Your call. Yeah. Age two. Two. So at two, <laughs> at two, I had uh, we had just moved back from Brazil. Where I was born. So, I, anyways, and then the last, then the next so, forty-five years, I've been here. So, so you're forty-seven now. I am forty-seven. Um, you're you're a young man compared yep. to me um, by one year. Uh, <laughs> I am curious though when 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 post two and pre forty-seven did you get interested in meditation and how did that lead you to birth? Yeah. So my main interest started to happen around the time I was in medical school in my 20s and could say I was experiencing somewhat of a that sense of spiritual crisis where in my words now would be like really asking some of those questions like what where am I going and even seeing some of the role models that were ahead of me and just wondering is that the life that I'm wanting to move towards and I didn't at that time I just didn't see a tremendous amount of wisdom or clarity, settledness. Um, and I think there was just an under, there was a, a sense of, I really want to understand what is it that brings us a sense of fulfillment and happiness. And I you know, began feeling that even being in medical school, just seeing that system of like a revolving door of healing to some degree, but then not getting to some deeper roots of of real suffering. And I didn't have that framing at that time. I didn't know about the Dharma. And so I, I left and met up with my two brothers that were having similar journeys uh, at that time, not exactly what my parents had planned for us. And we met up in India. And that's where 
through searching, I came across uh, meditation. That was the real first exposure I had. Did a 10-day retreat in the Guenka tradition. That's yeah. a certain style of – S.N. Guenka, Indian right. uh, businessman who learned how to meditate while doing business in Burma and then right. created a worldwide – he's now deceased, but right. he created a worldwide network of free meditation centers – which you know, and he teaches basically through video and audio tapes. At exactly, yeah. exactly. And it was a, it was a, it was a really significant first retreat. And I spent the next two years really deeply immersed in that style of practice. But because it's taught through the video and audio, I didn't, I wasn't really able to ask the questions that were coming up in my mind. And I needed, I really needed to hear from someone who had their own personal practice and could share their wisdom. So when I was in India at that time, someone told me about a teacher in Burma who had just passed away, Shui Umin Saidal, and he had left behind a primary student um, who was a young teacher, and that's Saidal Tejaniya. And when I heard a brief description about him and his life, he had been married, had one kid, had been a business person, and then became a monk, but it was mostly through his practice in daily life where he gained his insights. And I was really curious about practice as a way of living you know how do you how do you actually integrate these teachings so it's not something that gets compartmentalized in a certain time of day but how how is it something that we engage with so that our insights and wisdom are are growing all the time and that's there was just a little description of him from this person i met and i thought i'm gonna go there so i went there became a monk with him for a couple years and then it was after that that actually I came in touch with the insight world back when I came back to America. And then a couple of years later, he was really discovered. Utejaniya, Saito Utejaniya was discovered and invited to come to the U.S. And it was his coming to the U.S. that I then went to Insight Meditation Society in Barry Mass and met Joseph Goldstein, for example, and then slowly moved into the teaching uh, as well. Stay tuned. More of our Conversation is on the way after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. 
The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. million questions I want to ask based on everything you just said. Okay. One of the questions, so you... Pick two. You, no, I'm <laughs> going with a million. Uh, the you, you talked about the insight world. The insight world is just basically, I think, shorthand for American Theravada slash um, insight slash Vipassana teaching in the United States. The Perfect. three leading lights in that are Sharon Salzberg, yes. Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Cornfield. They've right. set up two meditation centers, one in Barry, Massachusetts, where you worked, and the other in Marin County called Spirit Rock. And uh, Sharon Joseph are now the founding teachers on the 10% Happier app. And, right. And, and so you worked at IMS. And I understand that one of your jobs was to answer calls that came in over the red phone. Yes. So the red phone is like the panic phone for people who are freaking out. Yes. Uh, and you, for a while, you were the person on the other end of the line. I was. And, and actually, Joseph Goldstein he wanted to be able to abuse that system. So if he was on, out on a bike ride, he could just pick up, call that number, actually. And so he could just feel secure that wherever he was, he knew that someone was on that, the other end of that phone and come to his rescue. <laughs> but my real, my real responsibilities uh, shared with someone else was in the retreat environment, um, how to, to be available for folks that may experiencing some challenges as they were deepening in concentration, for example, um, that could trigger some some sense of uh, instability or fear and just needing a little bit more human connection to help stabilize and normalize that, um, that process so that there was a sense of ease again. Um, so that's part of the support system that's there for these uh, more uh, in-depth retreats. Thank you for answering that. The other yeah. thing I wanted to dive into, and I'm actually only going to pick two, is um, the emphasis that Utejania, the Burmese teacher, where and, and let's just let aside set aside that fact that you became a monk for a while. That's kind of a big deal. I'm sure your parents were freaking out it's about better. that. Yeah, um, he was doing so great. He was in med school, and he shaved his head and moved to Burma, um, or moved to Burma and shaved moved to Burma and shaved his head. I'm not sure what the order of events was. I, I actually tried to keep all of that. Quiet, and oh. both of my brothers eventually came and became monks as well. Really, they did, and we didn't tell them until probably two years after. But they think you're on a cruise. No, they knew where we were, <laughs> uh, and we were at that we were in retreat environments. But okay. I think giving that information probably would have been further away from the truth. 
in their minds. I see. Because it would have been filled with all kinds of ideas that actually would have been even less true than just describing in a general way what we were doing, which was the real essence of, of what was going on. Right. They would have thought you were like Franciscan monks or something like that. Yeah, or just, I mean, some cult. I mean, some really joining, uh, really lost, yes. you know, really, really lost. Um, because there's no, there's no, can, no framework for them to understand what is a Buddhist monk and why would one do that. Or to know that you can ordain, take the robes for a temporary period of time and throw your hair back and move back into daily life. Daily life is where I wanted to take us. So you became very interested in the idea, although you became a monk and were doing deep retreat, you also were really interested in his emphasis on daily life. And I wanted to say a couple things about that. One is you teach an excellent course inside the 10% Happier app on meditation and daily life. I call it the sort of free-range mindfulness where you're waking up in the midst of doing things like driving. Even you taught how to be awake while using your your iPhone or Android, right. which I think is right. really interesting. So all that can be seen in, in the app. But I wanted to just have you hold forth on that a little bit here because eventually I will be a good interviewer and bring us to what we're supposed to be talking about, right. which is habits. Um, but when forming this habit of meditation – the idea that you can practice off the cushion in your life and take it into the world with you, I think is a really powerful one and can support your formal practice too. There's a kind of double helix self-reinforcing thing in my mind. But can you hold Absolutely. forth on that? Sure. I mean this is actually one of the things that, um, again, from Utejaniya, Sayadaw Utejaniya, what he would say, he would ask this question to people. Uh, he said, let's do a little bit of math. So let's say you – Let's see, how many hours a night do you sleep? On a good night. Best case, seven. Seven, seven eight. Okay, and then let's, you used to do, I don't know if you're still doing it, how many hours are you practicing? I used to do two, now I do one. Okay, so that leaves how many other hours in the day? Yeah, 16. 16. So what are you doing with your mind during those 16 hours? Checking Twitter. Exactly. Great. So you've probably gotten really good at Twitter. You, it's like you can do it almost in your sleep, right? Yes, I can. I might have. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that <laughs> That might not be called what's what we, a phrase onward leading, right? Yeah. That sense of – and we all have our things that we do. And there's nothing wrong with checking Twitter and doing our life. Obviously, we, we live in rich lives. But how we're using our mind during the day has an influence. And this is why oftentimes you see this. Almost everyone, they come on retreat. As a retreat teacher, you know, it's a privilege to then see the nature of the mind, anyone's mind. When it's cold from daily life, you come on retreat and you spend the first few days kind of like lifting up the carpet and just looking what's under there. It's like, oh God, I don't know if I want to look there. And this is where it's a lot of doubts come in. The momentum of awareness is pretty, say cold or not, not really going yet. It's inevitable if you just are in that kind of environment and this is a retreat environment, but any situation where you're allowing awareness to arise again and again, Awareness gains momentum. That's what developing a, the habit of awareness is really about. So when we say formal practice, what we're really doing in formal practice is we're setting up the conditions that the quality of awareness can keep arising more frequently than it otherwise would have, right? So then what is it that enables us to do that during these other 16 hours during the day? For me, one of the big changes was even just being told it's possible. Because my practice had been 
really about a very specific, very disciplined way of using my attention, which was tracking my body sensations. Which is the, this tracking of the body sensations or body scanning. A body scanning. Is the, one of the hallmarks one of, the hallmarks, of S.N. Goenka's style. Exactly. And there's so much you can learn from that, and it's an, a, a very effective practice. One of – so just as an example, what was happening at one point in my practice was I was tracking really well the body sensations. But in the background, I began to get a little bit depressed. This is in the midst. And I hadn't really suffered from much depression, but there was a sense of really deep despair. And I'd gone through some challenges because throwing up – you know, throwing my life into complete disarray with no – direction when everything was so clear and certain in medical school then you let it go for what you know i don't i didn't even know what i was looking for you know and i was fortunate enough that i found really what was at the heart of what i wanted to find so there was a time in my practice where i was practicing diligently but lurking in the background were these other qualities of my experience but they were in a way being blocked because it wasn't what my quote unquote practice was about, which was track the sensations and be sweeping through my body, scanning. And when I met Utejaniya, my teacher, one of the main things that he just said right away was, allow the awareness to be more natural. You already feel confident in being aware. Let yourself know the, de- the, you know, the feelings of depression as a, as a mental energy. Notice more. So in a way, let the awareness open. Don't keep it constricted. So even just hearing that we can do that. So if we get good at being with the breath, good with being with the body, and then you begin to notice something else, the way to work with that is just, in a way, begin to appreciate that you're knowing more. And I think that even Joseph says something like this, rather than it being a distraction, is now I'm noticing something more. You can still return to the primary thing. But as you let the awareness continue to know more and more, over time, what it begins to feel like is that awareness is accompanying our life as we're going through it in a really natural way. Not some heavy-handed top-down doing it, but actually awake and inside our moods, our emotions, our thoughts. But, and that's, a, that's an unfolding process. You know, I can speak about it easily. Obviously, that just takes... And it's all, all these things are always easier said than done. It's a practice. Don't we need to go through the phase shift you mentioned before? Yeah. It seems like at the beginning of a meditation habit, it's going to kind of suck. You're, it's, it's, um, you know, I sometimes joke, it's a skill. If I handed you a flute right now, you're not yeah, going to be playing Jethro Tull right. you, unless you had years of practice. But you haven't had years of practice, you're going to make weird high-pitched noises. Right. And so with meditation, you sit down, there's going to be some efforting and some uh, right. awkwardness. And, but I think at some point, I think what you're saying is you, you, you realize that this ability we have to be aware, not caught up in our stories, but just kind of aware of whatever's happening right now, just starts to arise naturally. Yes. Um, and by the way, you happen to pick the one instrument I did play for a long time, <laughs> not quite at the level of Jethro Tull, but I did play the flute. So. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so like that, like anything that we're, we're going to get uh, more and more familiar with. You know, in, it's going to feel awkward at first, not quite sure what we're doing. This is why we often start with something really grounding like the body, like the breath. My, my encouragement and what really helped me so much was as you continue to do that, 
in a way to frame in your mind the possibility that the awareness can can know whatever parts of your ex- experience starts to present itself. So we don't have to think, I have to come back to something. You can recognize what is it that I'm actually experiencing right now. And it may be that the mind is spinning in doubts. It may be that it's struggling with staying awake. Or, But as we begin to include that experience as well and then return to something that feels grounding, we get more and more used to the sense of, oh, actually, I can generally, in a general way, notice if I feel relaxed or agitated. So that was one strong encouragement that you know, that my teacher would offer me and to other students was, it's not that hard to know your general state of mind. You could use that as you're moving about the day and how many times might you notice that. And it's meaningful because you can really feel some way in which maybe you're getting tight mentally and the body follows or the body's feeling agitated and the mind gets triggered. If you notice that and then just notice what happens next, there can be this sense now of awareness meeting this moment. And sometimes those clenched you know, aspects of our mind can soften. But basically, the, the, what I was really trying to emphasize in, just in this encouragement is to just see the possibility in those moments, any moment that you have during the day, is it possible to bring in just one more moment and one more moment? Like that, if we keep doing that, you will find over time there are so many activities where awareness starts to creep in, right? And so that's, that's the framing. And it just needs encouraging. I think the more we hear that that's possible and the more parts of our experience in a way that gets named that you can be aware of your hearing, you can be aware of seeing, you can be aware of the mind that is worrying and anxious or doubting or joyful, can hear the sound of your voice, as you mentioned earlier, anything that allows awareness to arise again is the development of our awareness. And the more awareness shows up, the more skilled we are at actually recognizing what are skillful habits of our mind and what are unskillful. And we just need to be present enough to feel that, right? And that's, that's the whole transformative power of the practice. Right. And that in and of itself is a habit. Right. So let's talk habits for a second. Yeah, great. So I want to go deep. You have, because in, in recording this course, yeah. the new course, the right. old one is the meditation in, in real life, sort of off the cushion stuff, but the new course you're one of the stars of is our habits course. In recording this, you, you actually brought my understanding of habits to a really a, a much higher plane. Before we go into the kind of deeper stuff, though, let me just ask some really basic blocking right. and tackling questions yep. around people for people who are looking to boot up a meditation practice. I, I get asked these a lot. I know what my answer is, but I want to hear what your answer is. So how much should I do if I'm looking to start a meditation habit? Is there a time of day I should do it? Right. Where should I do it? Right. What do you say to those sort of basic logistical questions? Yeah, I tend to I, – I mean, everyone's personality is different. And we're all – so we all in a, some way tend to articulate the things that have worked for us or we know the other person. So it, it's good just to listen to a lot of different advice and just see what resonates and play with that. So I tend to, I tend to encourage in some ways like really low expectations or to set up the conditions so that you get these, I think maybe use this phrase of these small wins. Mm -hmm. So 
let's say at the end of a retreat, oftentimes people wonder, how do I keep going? This feels so good now. How do I keep going? And there's all these expectations. Well, I'm going to practice, you know, an hour in the morning, an hour at night, or long periods of time. And I like to just generally recommend even just think 30 seconds, even one breath. Like have a spot where you can just go and, and that little bit of touching into a practice where you can just begin to settle, and even if it's just 30 seconds. What I find, and I've heard this from a lot of people, is that tends to set up the conditions where there's nothing blocking you from going to do that. So when our awareness doesn't, when, when practicing mindfulness or awareness feels like a chore, the mind's not happy to really go and do it. When it feels that it's something that, oh, I want to do this because I feel really good. It gives me a, a moment to just check in, not as something I've got to accomplish. That kind of momentum can keep building day after day. So but that's it, one At the beginning, big thing. isn't it always going to feel like a chore? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think it has to. I think, I, th- I think there's ways in which you can approach the practice with the knowledge that it's okay for the mind to think, to drift, to feel agitated. If we normalize that, not normalize in the sense that it's just normal, but that you know this is the nature of the mind and this is the essence of the practice is this is you're discovering, wow, look at this. I thought this mind is something I can just control when in fact, when I sit down or lie down to do some practice, it just slips off into wherever, whatever it wants to go to. So when we have that understanding that that's actually the practice, and then when the awareness returns again, you appreciate the experience of being aware again, in a way that takes off the pressure. And it's natural, yes, it's natural that as we begin to engage in anything, we bring in these old habits of striving, of doing it as a chore. Those are just the habits that we can actually recognize and see. Because there is a way of allowing and inviting ourselves to do to practice being aware in the present moment without it feeling like a heavy-handed, heavy thing to, to do. We're going to bump into heaviness and struggle. That's habits of mind. That's natural, right? But the basic framing is um, awareness is a really pleasant experience, and it allows us to know the present moment. So how do we approach it in that way? You said set the bar low. If, if I'm listening to this and I've never meditated before, but I, I've Everybody's telling me I should meditate or I've long wanted to meditate. Right. I've heard about the science. Right. So are you saying the bar is as low as one try to pay attention to one breath a day or would you amp me up toward a minute or two minutes? Yeah, let's go with let's, – let's do at least – I think everyone can, can deal with a minute. And there, we have a lot of one-minute meditations great. on the app, yes. Yeah. The idea is not to be triggering the aversion that's in the mind that then would not lead us to want to do it again. Right. But right. if you sit down and just – experience a little bit of, oh, this is interesting. I can watch my mind for a few seconds and then it runs off. That's fascinating. But then you're not pushing yourself to make it happen where then you maybe start struggling and feeling like this is, you know, just get tied up into a knot. For some of us, that's fine. It's sort of, we love the challenge. For other people, you know, it's like, I already have enough struggle. I don't, I'm not practicing in order to create more stress and, you know, overwhelm. So this is where, you know, partly going back to that sense of deep ease, the invitation to relax. You know, I like to encourage people, really allow yourself to just lie down. And if you're really deeply tired, let yourself fall asleep. Fall asleep when you wake up, then allow the awareness to return. 
then see if you drift out away again. As you get that kind of rest, the mind has its own natural wakefulness, and that starts to show up. So that that sort of relationship to being aware, I think, brings a sense of ease and curiosity that that doesn't become a burden, like oh, something else I've got to do and get right. I think I think I, I'm sold. Great. What about issues around time and place and all of that? Right. Some people are quite militant about first thing in the morning. I right. I don't believe that to be true. If it's if you're a morning person, great. Yeah. But what's your take? I agree with you. I think I love when people say that. Yeah. You know all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I could be asking the questions. So, I think just knowing yourself, when is when do you have that that little bit of time to take a few minutes? And it could be in it could be in the morning, right when you wake up, it could be in the evening. A lot of people talk about that, you know, using the bathroom if you're like a mom and the only place dad or, you know, stay-at-home dad, where you need that moment just yourself. Some people in the bathroom is like their refuge. Just go hide out, you know, in the bathroom for a few minutes, time to check in. I think there's so many small moments during the day that can be used skillfully. And it's not about doing something intense. It's just actually taking advantage of that particular situation, you're riding in an elevator or standing in line shopping, any of those moments where the mind isn't just being drawn into the doing mode and has a chance to be more clear and awake, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely agree with, and this goes back to our discussion about sort of on-the-go meditation as opposed to quote-unquote formal meditation. It's a tough word because it makes it Mm -hmm. sound a little more daunting than it needs to be. But and that everything else is informal yes, and yes, not real. Of course, yeah. right. So that's a not maybe the best sort of dualistic structure. But anyway, I, I, I still have the view, but I want to see if you think I'm right about this, that in order to bring meditate mindfulness awareness out into the world, it really does help to have a quote-unquote right. formal practice, if only a brief one. Yeah, I mean, it, it, right. It helps, the, it helps the steadiness and the stability of the mind. When you're... When you're sitting still, lying down, eyes are closed, there's just less triggers on the conceptual mind. Stories about what we need to do, what our responsibilities are, all of the I, quote-unquote, I-making, me-making, mine-making, like my chores, my responsibilities, my family, my job, my bills, so much of the mindness gets kicked up that it triggers our reactive tendencies, when we're settled, eyes are closed, we're not interacting with the world around us, in a way that is a training for awareness to get stronger, to be with our experience as we're having it. And yet if we only practice in that way, we never really get skilled at noticing what is our mind doing you know, in conversation when we're moving around, seeing other people. What are the different biases prejudices that come to our mind, which are natural as we see different people. Mindfulness allows us to be aware of that, to grow from it, right? to learn about all of these different aspects of our mind. Right? And, and there is just so much to learn about during the course of one day. I mean, literally, if we were to take this sort of like that Groundhog's Day scenario in our own life, that movie, you know, we just live the same day over and over again. If we just had our own day to live again and again, it's amazing how many things that we would really deeply discover about one day that if we were to live it with more awareness 
the next day and the next day and more wisdom seeing, you know, the nature of experience and cause and effect processes that are going on, how one thought leads to an emotional reaction, how emotions lead to the body to feel a certain way. And there's so many rich experiences that are happening, but it all happens in a way that we're not deeply awake to them. Yes, we're stuck in the story. Exactly. So, so you bring this same, I think, really helpful attitude to this course we've just done on habits. Uh, by the time this posts, right. the, the, the course will be on the app already. But as we're recording this, I've just finished working with our team to write the scripts. And so I'm kind of deeply immersed in the material. And right. what I love what you have brought to this along with Kelly McGonigal, who's also teaching on the course, is you've elevated a process. Habit formation, I think, is usually characterized. I'll speak for myself. Right. I think it's somewhat universalizable. That's not a word, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It's usually, I think, characterized by a lot of frustration, feelings of futility, humiliation and shame, and also maybe it's a superficial, like we're picking habits, you know, just because of my case, maybe I want the abs I had in my 30s oh, or that'd be great. whatever. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure you can relate to that. So and, and then maybe we're taught hacks on how to do it. And, right. you know, or, you know, can you do the four minute workout and all this stuff? But actually, right. this course is taking it and really there's so many ways in which um, you and Kelly make it a deep dive that is fascinating, invigorating, mm-hmm. and scalable way beyond habits, just like to the rest of our lives. So w- one of the things, that w- there's an exchange in the course, at least I hope it makes it into the course, mm-hmm. where you and I are talking about the shame that often kicks in when we fall off the wagon. And so say, for example, for me, I've been working on mindless eating, although I've actually gotten quite a bit better as a consequence of the, doing this course at mindless eating. And I noticed uh, you, you said to me something like, you know, it's important to see at its root that these habits are all impersonal patterns and right. forces in the mind. And I was like, well, dude, when I eat a bunch of Oreos and I've got them all over my face and on the ground and I look around and I feel the shame and disgust, that feels really personal. What would your response? I don't want to make you re-answer oh. exactly, but but you, I would love to hear you hold forth on how actually – no, no, no. We, we can we can look at these patterns of shame as like impersonal patterns, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is in some ways pointing at the the very reason why we can be so deeply unhappy with ourselves or or with life is because we we do take it to be ourselves, and I think that whole framing of as we see it as habits that the habits of greed, of wanting, of craving, of aversion, um, resistance, judging, comparing, all of those, when we see them as habits and we frame it that way, and I know it to be true for myself, is I actually get curious. I get interested in how powerful they are, how easy it is, even when I have the intention. We can say this right now. You know, By the time this launches, it's going to be, I think, the new year, so mm-hmm. happy new year's. And everyone can – we have this idea of, you know, the New Year's, let's have a New Year's resolution. So it's so easy to make a resolution. And if we were in charge of our mind, you just need to make one resolution, right? It's done. And yet it just doesn't work that way because these are grooves that are worn into the mind. They're patterns. So when the conditions are there, they get triggered. This is why if there's someone that you – let's say you've had a difficult experience with someone. All you need is the image or a word, the word, 
one little thing in the mind, and the mind goes into that dynamic, right? That is conditioned, right? That that because of the past and the relationship that that groove we could say gets put in place. So when you have a personality that gets triggered into anger, mine is a lot of has been historically, and I still carry some elements, but a lot of fear of public speaking. We've talked about this a little bit. Now it's personally, less, we've talked about it. Yes, yes, personally, yeah, and then and you know that fear has turned that's gone down, and now it's more the anxieties of how are people going to see me, you know, and approval. Am I just an imposter? So those kinds of patterns are there. When I see them as patterns, they're actually totally fine. When I don't see them as patterns, and I'm doing this, I'm trying to improve myself. I'm basically meeting these qualities with aversion, with judgment. And that almost blocks the nature of insight to arise. Hard to be really deeply curious and to be aversive at the same time. The nature of insight. Right. What do you mean by that? To be able to see something as it is. To see that it's impersonal. To see that it's changing. To see that if you actually look for the pattern itself, you're not going to find anything deeply there. Any kind of understanding, any seeing something clearly is an insight. Just even recognizing that it has an arc. It has a rising, starts small, maybe maybe gets triggered quickly, arises. We tend to think when something is really strong in our experience that it's now who we are and it's permanent. And yet when we're not paying attention, it goes away and now we're into our next identity our next self, we're at a party and things are different or, right? And we're not even seeing these rises and falls of experience that we get so swept up into. Patterns of shame, of cravings, of whatever, whatever it is that we experience, they become these identities and we miss the insight that they actually are just, when the conditions are there, they boom, like they arise. And then when the conditions change, they also go. They're not an identity, and right, and you see them as, in, as impermanent as well. So having the curiosity about the nature of it allows us to have less shame about what they truly are. And I've been around teachers in Burma and in Thailand as well. And I don't know how um, kosher this would be in, you know, in the Western world, but we actually have had teachers encourage people who drink too much alcohol and like they encourage them to mindfully, and I, don't, I want to be careful around this because I know these patterns are very deep. They're very, very difficult to work with. But the, in, in those, condi- those settings, if they're already doing it, so let's say one is already doing it, how do you bring awareness and interest to it if you're already going to do it? So instead of the shame and just rushing through it and trying to hide it from yourself, how do you be right in the midst of it mm. and crumble the Oreo cookies all over your <laughs> face and you know, and, and do that process. So one antidote to shame that we talk about, I mean, so di- the disutility of shame is a huge theme in this course that we've just posted. And one of the antidotes that you talk about, I think, w- with it, I should say, this is going to key right into your pattern. You did a great do- uh, job yeah, talking okay. about it on the, on the, in the course. Uh, one of the antidotes is curiosity, really just right. being willing to check it out. Right. Another is deliberately kind of sending yourself some warmth. Mm. Uh, this mm-hmm. phrase self-compassion, which right. some people 
myself included, have a little bit of a problem with yeah. um, just because it, it sounds maybe soft or gauzy, but mm-hmm. in fact is incredibly powerful. It is. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the, the, the utility of self-compassion right. within the context of habit formation? Yeah, well, and, and to be transparent, it's not, a, it's not something specifically I've used in my own practice huh. directly or framed in those terms. But if I look at how I was relating and how I was encouraged and being taught right by my teacher at that time, it was, it was completely infused with self-compassion. And that, so that is that relationship that whatever is happening, that it really is okay. And so the framing that I was being really encouraged to use was to really see it as nature. And as nature. Nature, a natural yeah. process. And yes, I have a very yeah. warm relationship to nature, yeah. right? And, oh, it's nature. It's like anything that exists in the natural world. Our, our heart and mind processes, right, the habits that are there. They are nature. They are natural processes. That's a radical idea. I mean, it's, I think, inarguably true. Right. How could it not be nature? Right. It's all nature, right? But we think of our own it, hidden idiosyncrasies, right. thought patterns that we're maybe kind of half yeah, aware yeah. of as absolutely n- n- in no way related to an oak tree. Exactly. But we, right. but thinking of it as nature, that brings it right back to depersonalizing it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, much, it's a much more interesting way of engaging. And it's a much more skillful and wise way of being what truly is a cause and effect process. There is something going on moment to moment and then greed arises or shame arises or wanting, whatever pattern comes in. Seeing it as that is deeply compassionate because our normal response is I should be different. I don't want to experience this. I want out. I want it to stop. Or here I go again. God, I can't believe I I can't do this, you know, with all my best intentions, which is still, that's that whole tendency that all of us have. It's universal. We we personalize it as our identity. We don't see it as a process that's unfolding. So my invitation then is in whatever way for for anyone, for, for you as a meditator, then is how do you explore being with your own tendencies of mind. Here we're talking about the those habits of mind that that are ruts, you know, that lead to suffering. How do you be with them so that you can actually accompany them as long as they're there, as long as they're going to be present, so that you can learn about them. And each time there's a little bit more awareness alongside a deep rut, what's happening is you're building a new a new pattern. And if you continue to let that deepen, at some point, they're on par with each other. The reason why we fall into habits that we're not wanting to fall into is that when those conditions are there, the factors of mind that would be stabilizing our awareness, our clarity, are not yet able to match that. So that's why it's going to take a lot of patience. And the more you understand that it's just going to take patience, that whatever it is that you're caught up into, if you continue to be curious and bring some awareness to it. Patience, awareness, see that it leads to suffering again and again. Slowly our own wisdom starts to choose differently. It's inevitable in a way when you really pick up something that burns with enough clarity and enough times, you'll start to recognize this does hurt, right? And, but that needs to be done also with these other factors. So there's an alternative. What can I do, right? If all we do is experience the activation with shame, we just keep deepening the desire to get out, 
right? And then we get out by diving back into the very habit. Oftentimes we want to escape because it makes us momentarily feel good, right? These little satisfactions that we get from things that we're craving or, you know, just spacing out. We covered a vast amount of territory here, which okay. is pretty awesome. Yeah. Bef- before we go, if people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Obviously, they can go check out the app because you're all over that. But yeah. where else on the in, in the interwebs can we learn about you? The main place is my website, which is alexisantos.io, which I have never used, really. <laughs> so there's nothing there other than my retreat schedule. Well, that's valuable. Right. So my, go, my retreat yeah. schedule is on there and then 10% happier as uh, in terms of you know, listening to my meditations and Dharma Seed is that yeah d- Dharma Seed dot org. Uh, we'll right. put a link to this. If you go on there, it has all these Dharma talks from retreats right. uh, uh, that are run at centers all over the place. If you type in Alexis's name, uh, you can a bunch of his Dharma talks will come up, and you can check them out. Just in closing, big thank you. I know I'm going to trigger your pattern a little bit here, but you, d- you do a great job with this, and it's uh, it's really fun to sit and talk to you. And lucky to have you on the app and as a friend. So likewise, Dan. Great to be here. Big thanks to Alexis. And check him out. He's actually one of the stars of this new course we're doing on the 10% Happier app uh, around healthy habits. And it's a whole course dedicated to how to approach making life changes in a way that takes it out of the realm, as I was discussing in the intro, out of the realm of sort of life hacks, superficial stuff, and, and brings it into pretty deep water. And also, I talked about this earlier too, sort of reduces the amount of self-flagellation that often is as part of changing habits, at least in my case. Uh, great course. Really, really proud of that work and proud to have Alexis be part of it. Let's do the voicemails. Once again this week, we've got a ringer, Ray Hausman, who's the head of our coaching team at 10% Happier, very experienced meditation teacher. So uh, she's going to answer the questions. Here we go with voicemail number one. Hey, Dan, it's Tracy. I have a question. So how come the how come in my Insight Meditation Center that I go down to or some of the online podcasts, the Buddhists never talk about sex. Do they have sex? Is it good sex? I'm curious to know. Thanks. Bye-bye. Great question. And I agree with you. This is not a commonly spoken about topic. For sure, Buddhists have sex. I'd say that there's some reason to suggest that Buddhists may even have more potential to enjoy sex, simply because we're practicing being aware of our experience as we're in it. So, as we're engaging in sex we may be more aware, more present for it. With regard to your question, you may find Martin Aylward's talk, The Dharma of Sex, to be a good resource uh, in your explorations. So you can find that by looking up Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, Aylward, A-Y-L-W-A-R-D, and the title is The Dharma of Sex. Hope that's helpful. Thank you, Ray. Here's voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. My name is Lauren. Thanks for taking my voicemail. Um, This morning I was meditating and a coughing fit came over me. One part of me kept thinking that I should push through and keep meditating, and another part of me was thinking, this is crazy, let's take a break, get a lozenge, try again a little later. My eyes were watering, there was the incessant tickle at the back of my throat even after the cough subsided. It was really distracting and uncomfortable, and I was wondering, what would you have done? Thanks. This is a great question. Thanks for asking. And what's fundamental to understand here is that when we're practicing meditation, it's ultimately not about the breath, 
or even being able to pay attention to the breath. We're interested in observing our experience just as it's arising in the moment. Whatever that experience is, maybe a coughing fit, and seeing how the mind relates to it so that we can learn and ultimately begin to make more skillful choices as we navigate our lives. Coughing is natural. It happens as we go about our daily life, and it can happen when we are practicing meditation. What happens in the mind when we cough? How many of us have explored that? Do we relate to coughing as though it's a distraction from what we think we ought to be doing? Coughing is the experience that's happening in the moment. Just as a thought or a breath is an expression of nature, coughing is also an expression of nature. We can learn to relate to coughing and experiences like it as opportunities for exploration in the practice. If we're having a coughing fit, we don't want to try and have a more contained breath so that we can return to our meditation practice because we're supposed to be paying attention to the breath. We want to let the body have its natural expression and observe. Coughing and the after effects of coughing, like having a tickle in the throat, are often uncomfortable. So the mind's tendency might be to try and get away from these experiences. When we have a practice-oriented attitude toward our experience, we can fold aspects of our experience that may initially seem like distractions into our field of observation and learn from them and the mind's reactions to them. What does the body feel like when it's coughing? What happens in the mind when there is a tickle in the back of the throat? What is the experience of the mind like when we feel like we are distracted from our real practice because we're suddenly having a coughing fit? These are all potential areas of exploration. I hope this is helpful and offers you some ways to explore this experience going forward. Thanks again for your question. Big thanks to Ray for pitching in this week. Really appreciate that. And before we go, I just want to say, as I always do, a thanks to our team. And I hope this doesn't come off as perfunctory. This is, I really feel a lot of gratitude to the incredibly smart people who do a lot of hard work making this show better than it deserves to be, given who the host is on a weekly basis. Uh, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omohundro, Josh Cohan, thanks to all of you. We'll be back next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know.
Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.